0: Welcome to the Saltwater Strategists, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo Pacific region, episode 2 of Series 2. I'm your host, Jen Parker. Before I start today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Rear Admiral James Goldrick. A former president of the Australian Naval Institute, James was a remarkable person and shipmate who made a significant impact on the Royal Australian Navy, the wider community, and my own personal interest in maritime security. He was an internationally acclaimed naval historian and strategist and his contributions will be sorely missed. Our thoughts and condolences go out to his family and loved ones during this difficult time. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. The Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. Turning to our episode today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Marcus Hellier with us today as our special guest. As Australia grapples with significant national security discussions following the AUKUS nuclear submarine selection announcement and the impending release of Australia's Defence Strategic Review, Marcus brings his wealth of experience in defence and security to shed light on these important issues. Marcus has an extensive background in defence economics and military capability, having worked as a senior analyst and prolific writer on defence matters at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He has held senior positions in the Australian Department of Defence, where he developed and administered Defence's capital investment program, providing recommendations on major capital investments such as the Joint Strike Fighter, Future Frigate and Future Submarine. Furthermore, his experience as a terrorism analyst in Australia's intelligence community gives him unique insights into national security challenges. As a prolific writer, Marcus has contributed to numerous publications covering a wide range of topics from defence exports to long-range strike options and the impact of inflation on Australia's defence budget. With his expertise in defence economics and budgets, defence capability and military strategy, Marcus is a highly sought-after commentator on defence matters. We are delighted to have Marcus join us today to share his insights on these pressing issues. Marcus, thank you for joining us on The Saltwater Strategist.
1: Thanks, Jen. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: Given your extensive background and given everything that's happening at the moment, there's a lot to cover, so um, if you don't mind, I'll just jump into it. So, obviously, very significant announcements with the AUKUS optimal pathway. What are your thoughts on the key challenges that Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom will face in implementing the AUKUS partnership and delivering conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarines to Australia at the earliest possible date?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. That's uh, it's really the key question we're facing. And there are challenges. And I'll note first up that those challenges don't mean we can't get there. So we can get there. It'll take a lot of time. It'll take a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of committed people. Uh, so we we can get there. So nothing I say here says uh, we can't. Now, of course, you can look at all of those challenges and go, gosh, is it really worth the, the, the cost? You know, and I think there's legitimate debates to be had there um, uh, amongst reasonable people. But even if you're a supporter of the AUKUS program and the goal of getting nuclear submarines for Australia, it's important to understand those challenges so you can address them. So just off the top of my head, um, you know, one challenge is money. It's going to cost us an awful lot of money. And I know, Jen, you want to talk a bit about money later on. So maybe I'll leave put that to the side for now and we can talk about that uh a bit later. But the next challenge is industrial capacity. It's no secret that none of the three partners at the moment have the industrial capacity to build submarines for Australia. And in fact, our two partners, the US and the UK, are really struggling to build submarines for themselves, let alone additional submarines Uh, to meet our needs. So all three countries are going to have to develop their industrial capability. Now exactly what form that takes is I think still requires a lot of work. The government has said there will be a production line for submarines here in Australia, but it, what exactly we do here to not just for our own benefit to but to benefit all three partners, how we share workload, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in that space. But it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. And probably one of the more controversial aspects of the announcement uh, a couple of weeks ago was that we'll be paying the US and the UK some rather large amounts of money to develop their industrial capacity, So, uh, particularly so the US will have sufficient Virginia-class boats to provide to us. But I think that's kind of unavoidable if you want boats in that time frame. So uh, the next issue, and this I think for many people is is really the key issue, and that is workforce, both uniformed workforce, the civilian uh, workforce, uh, essentially supporting the submarines, and then the industrial workforce building. The submarines. So, as a rough order of magnitude, where we have around 750 to 800 submariners at the moment to operate a fleet of six uh, Collins boats, that's probably going to have to go to somewhere in the order of 2,000 or two and a half thousand. So, we may need to, you know, roughly triple the number of submariners. That's going to be. Very challenging because we not only need to keep Collins going, but we need to ramp up the number of submariners for the new nuclear boats. So that's going to be a big ask. And in fact, you know, I think the main driver for an East Coast submarine base is not so much a strategic uh, driver, but it's actually getting access to the larger population centers on the East Coast so we can have, uh, we can find Uh, those submariners, and more importantly, retain them. The issue of industrial workforce, I think, is going to be really challenging. When you you look at the currently the Collins Sustainment Enterprise, there's sort of roughly eight, nine hundred people uh, in Adelaide doing full cycle dockings. There's another roughly six or seven hundred people in uh, Western Australia. Doing mid-cycle dockings. If you add all of those people up who are currently keeping Collins going, it's probably in the order of a couple of thousand. You know, when we look forward ten years, our colon, our submarine enterprise will be doing uh, life of type extensions on the Collins. It'll be doing the everyday sustainment on the Collins. We will be bringing our first. Uh, Virginia-class nuclear submarine into service, so we'll need a sustainment system for that. Um, We'll need to have in place the safety and regulatory system to allow us to be good custodians of nuclear technology. And also we will have started building AUKUS submarines. So we need to go from somewhere where we've maybe got a few Two or three thousand people doing the industry side of submarines to a, a number that could potentially be ten times bigger or more when we look at you know the need to be um, supporting three classes of submarine simultaneously. So that's going to be. Hugely challenging, I think, and that growth has to start now. I have to say, I am a little sceptical about whether we can actually get there. Can we continue to operate Collins and keep it as a, a relevant capability? Bring Virginia class boats into service and build and ultimately bring AUKUS boats into service? Can we can we do that with an, uh, an industrial base the size of Australia's? Uh, I think there's still big question marks. Around that.
0: Thanks, Marcus. You flagged some really interesting challenges there, talking about industrial capacity, not only in Australia, but uh, the UK and the US, workforce, and of course, cost. And turning to cost, you mentioned the figure $368 billion price tag. Mm. What do you think the impact of that price tag will be on the overall ADF capability with a finite budget? And looking forward to the impending DSR, do you think that other maritime capabilities will need to be shelved to accommodate for the cost of this plan?
1: Yeah, well, Jen, you've hit on the fundamental... Uh, question there, and that is opportunity cost. It's been said many times that you can only spend a dollar once, and there's an awful lot of demand for the limited number of dollars in the defence budget. So, there is there is a a lot of money in the defence budget. It's about, you know, $48.9 billion this year. So, it is uh, not a trivial sum of money, but there's a lot of things uh, to spend that Money on, so yes, the the government has said that it currently estimates the the. It's sort of funny. it sort of put it in a strange way. It says the program uh, to be two sixty eight to three sixty eight billion, and I'm not exactly sure what kind of time frame we're talking and what uh, the the program covers, but that's a very large amount of money. Interestingly, the the gap between that top and bottom figure is exactly a hundred billion dollars, uh, which. Is a little odd, but the size of that, that gap, see, indicates to me there's still a lot of uncertainty around this program, that defense is still kind of programming a large amount of money to address a lot of, of risk. So that gap to me indicates there's still a lot of risk. But I think um, rather than the total cost, it's more useful to think about the ongoing annual cost. And I'll note that the government, for the first time in my experience, has tried to give it a sense of what that is. And I I think that's um, laudable. I just don't quite agree with their number. So they've said um, that that program over its life will be about 0.15% of GDP. And you go, well, gosh, that doesn't sound like much. But I think when you average it like that, it's a little misleading. So we have to be aware that, um, you know, over the first decade, we're not going to be spending relatively speaking, that March, And then the cost will increase in the second decade. And then by the third decade, you'll kind of get to the mature spend where you'll have Virginia-class boats and AUKUS boats in service. So you'll have a fleet of six, seven, eight boats. You'll have the sustainment system and you'll have a mature industrial enterprise that is producing additional boats to in order to maintain an ongoing fleet of around eight boats. When we get to that point in time, I think the number is going to be significantly more than 0.15% of GDP. It, it could be about um, 0.25% of GDP or or more. It's still a quarter of a percent of GDP. You say that doesn't really sound like much. Sure. But I think when you look at it as a percentage of the defense spend, the government said, well, it'll be less than um, 10%. Again, I think when you look at the mature system when it's been when it's up and running um, you know in 20, 25 years' time. I think we could be looking at a figure more like 15 or 16% of the total defence budget. And I think that will have a real impact, a real opportunity cost. So if we look at the current defence budget, each of the services is around 21 or 22% of the total defence budget. So they they're actually each one's a lot less than a third because we're also paying for other things like the intelligence services and and things like like that. So around 21, 22 percent is what the Navy is is costing us today. So if we have a single maritime capability that is costing 15 or 16 percent of um, the total defense budget, you know, y- you cannot continue to have, all of the other capabilities that we now have in in Navy so I think Jen you're quite right to ask what's the impact on the rest of Navy and the rest of the ADF now I don't think the cost is going to come entirely out of the Navy it's going to be spread across across uh, the Department of Defense and the ADF more broadly but This is the very challenging task that the DSR leads, so Angus Houston and Stephen Smith, that's the challenging task they had to deal with. So their, their writing brief, so their terms of reference were about was a clear focus on the next decade. So what can we do in the next decade to get capability into service quickly? Meanwhile, we've got this whole other activity, so the AUKUS submarines, and the government itself has said that the AUKUS submarines will cost 50 to 58 billion in the next decade. But then you go, uh, we're getting the first Virginia class boat delivered around 2033, i.e., at the end of the next decade. So essentially what we're saying is for the next decade, that 50 to 58 billion doesn't get us any capability whatsoever, plus it's not available for Angus Houston and Stephen Smith to spend on getting capability into service sooner. So, I think there will be an impact on the broader ADF in the next decade. I think everybody's got their own views on what that's going to look like. Um, you know, the government has not definitively said whether there'll be more funding over the next decade, but it has, to my mind, indicated there's not going to be any more in the forward estimate, so the next four years. So, that's going to be a very challenging kind of situation now there's always hopes that you know if we somehow get more efficient you know if we get a little leaner that will free up money but generally that only delivers you know small amounts of savings so where will the offsets come who's going to have to give up what um you know i i'm not sure and i'm really sort of uh waiting with great interest to see how that's handled in the DSR. You know, quite a number of commentators have said that it will be the army that has to bear the brunt of the pain, uh, particularly its ambitions for recapitalizing its armoured forces. So, Land 400, infantry fighting vehicles, you know, the last public budget for that was in the order of 18 to $27 billion. I think that's going to take a, a hit. I can't say for sure. Um, you know, tanks, even though they're nowhere near as much as infantry fighting vehicles, they'll probably be uh, a hit there. I think, you know, for Navy, the big question is, what impact is it going to have on the Hunter-class frigate? So that's a $45 billion program. Probably won't deliver... You know, any real capability, again, until a 2032-33 timeframe, Um, I I, I can't see the government Canceling that, particularly since it's a British design, you know, and, uh, you know, Britain is now our, our AUKUS buddy. So it'd be very hard to give that up. So, you know, you sort of start to run out of big tools. You know, if, if Hunter is locked in, if the AUKUS submarines are locked in, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. So I'm really going to be, I'm really interested to see how the DSR squares that circle.
0: Yes, it'll certainly be interesting to see what the DSR comes out with, Marcus. Since you've talked a bit about the DSR, I just want to touch on another theme that's been talked about a lot in the lead up to the DSR, and that's that concept of the need for greater long-range strike or or impactful projection, as seems to be being thrown around. I know late last year you co-authored a report with Andrew Nichols entitled Impactful Projection, long range Strike Options for Australia. Can you talk us through a little bit this concept of deterrence by denial, which, which is really in what impactful projection is? How does it relate to the Australian government's need for greater long-range strike capability?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things we've seen since the 2020 Defence Strategic Update is that both sides of politics have sort of said the ADF we have, the capabilities in the ADF we have aren't really what we need. And in fact, the DSU said it's primarily got defensive capabilities and we need new kinds of capabilities. So ones that have longer range that can reach out and impose greater cost on an adversary at greater range from Australia. And the DSU sort of said things like long-range strike, um, uh, anti-access area denial capabilities, and offensive cyber capabilities. And the current government has continued that theme, and the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles has has coined this phrase impactful projection. And when you sort of read how he describes that, it is the ability to, he says, create a big question mark in an adversary's mind at greater range from Australia. And I think that does fall into this, the the concept of deterrence by denial. So making it much, much more difficult and much more costly for an adversary to project force against Australia. So essentially, if an adversary does want to project force against Australia, they have to take into account that, uh, you know, if they get within, say, you know, 3,000 kilometres of Australia, we can reach out and touch them. So it's it's not a kind of hedgehog strategy in that we sit back in Darwin and, and wait for the bad guys to appear over the horizon, but it's a strategy, you know, the term porcupine has been used, you know, sort of uh, uh, an animal with long quills, you know, that can hurt you further away. And I I think whether you like this concept or not, I think it is now sort of ingrained in our, you know, in our policymakers thinking they want something with longer range, you know, something that, um, you know, fighter planes can't give you, you know. So when you look at that, in that space. Well, what are the things that can can give you that? Well, certainly submarines and particularly nuclear submarines can give you that. Long-range strike missiles could potentially give you that, but to my mind, they still don't really give you the, the range you need, and they certainly don't give you the mass you need. When you look at, say, the Ukraine conflict you know the the russians have fired literally thousands of missiles at the ukrainians and the ukrainians are still fighting the russians still can't shut down the ukrainians air defense systems they can't shut down their power grid or their communications network so i think there are limitations to um you know, thinking you can achieve everything just with long range missiles. Another option would be uh, strike aircraft with greater range and that and greater weapons carriage. So in that, that report you mentioned, Jen, uh, we looked in some detail at the B 21 bomber that is uh, being developed for the US Air Force. And to my mind, that's, that would also Uh, give you that big question mark, that ability to reach out three or four thousand kilometers and complicate an adversary's thinking. Now, obviously it's a different kind of platform to a nuclear submarine. It's going to deliver, you know, effects in a, a different way, but it, I think it does give you a form of impactful projection. You know, and would potentially do it sooner than nuclear submarines and also at at significantly less cost. But, you know, I think the important thing to remember, and you know this well, is that, you know, there's no silver bullet. There is no one single capability, no matter how good, such as SSNs, that will solve all of your security uh, needs and completely deter an adversary. So we still need a range of capabilities and SSNs will be a very good capability, but you know, we we can't make the mistake of, you know, putting all of our eggs, all of our investment eggs in that one basket.
0: That's a great leading, in fact, Marcus, to another report you've written that I that I really like to touch on. I think are uh, highly relevant in the lead up to the DSR. In November 21, you authored a report that was entitled Delivering a Stronger Navy Faster. Can you briefly explain your conclusions in this report?
1: Yeah, well, that was a report I wrote because there had been quite a lot of discussion in various parliamentary committees um, looking at progress in the Hunter Class Frigate Program. You know, and some of the things that were coming out of those parliamentary Committees were the fact that um, you know there still wasn't a stable design, even though the Hunter class was meant to be derived from a, a mature in-service design. In in this case, the Type 26 frigate um, in the UK. There was still a lot of developmental issues and that was um, in large part due to the fact that even though we had been looking for a mature design we we selected a design and then required a lot of very significant changes so to the to the radar to the combat system you know to the weapons uh, you know and they, those were the main ones and those you know had big flow-on effects to the stability of the design and a number of people uh, were concerned about that, including um, parliamentarians. The other issue with the uh, Hunter class is that um, it only has 32 vertical launch cells. And when we look at um, naval warfare, at the moment, you know, the ability to carry lots of weapons, whether offensive weapons or defensive weapons, is crucial to survival. And um, even though we're spending $45 billion on the Hunter, it's only got 32 missile cells. And when you compare that to the, the, the quote, industry standard, um, it's significantly less. So the US Arleigh Burke-class destroyer has 96 missiles, for example, three times as many, even though it's a similar-sized ship. And the kinds of vessels that the PLA Navy is launching similarly have around 100 missiles. And the, the other factor is that even if the, the hunter class program delivers on time, uh, the first boat is probably going to be operational sometime you know, around 2032, 2033. So again, that's right at the end of that key period that the DSR was meant to be, is meant to be looking at. So you know, there's a number of concerns about the hunter. So I, I looked at some other uh options. And, and, and what I would stress is that you know, I'm not really wedded to any of these options. I think the key thing is to acknowledge the risks in the Hunter program. And once you're upfront at acknowledging those risks, then you can look at ways to to address them. You know, the, the main one I looked at uh was to actually build more um Hobart class air warfare destroyers. And I suggested that. A number of reasons. The first one is that we actually know how to do it, you know, and it's a mature design. We know how to do it. The The other reason is, is that the, the Hobart class is a pretty capable ship. I think the Royal Australian Navy has been pretty happy with it, not just its air warfare capability, but it's turned out to be a reasonable uh, anti-submarine platform as well. So it it wasn't specifically designed for that, but it's worked out that it can do it quite well. And so um, if we cast our minds back to the original C-5000 competition when Navantia was competing with BAE, um, Navantia had proposed doing a number of modifications to the air warfare destroyer design that would improve its anti-submarine warfare capability, such as some uh, noise reduction methods and also uh, a second hanger for a, a second ASW uh, helicopter. So I think there's more you can do to actually relatively easy improve the ASW uh, capability of a kind of improved Hobart class. And the next factor is is the price compared to a Hunter would be, you know, reasonably good, reasonably would be certainly because there's a, a direct relationship between size and cost, and the Hobart design is smaller than where the hunter has got it got to, it would probably be, be more affordable. And I wasn't suggesting that you would actually uh, cancel the hunter class program, but you would um, build some Hobarts as a risk mitigation measure. So, um, we would get some capability, hopefully, into into service by the end of the 2020s. I think it's interesting to to note that over from 2020 to 2030, the defence budget is going to be, uh, you know, over half a trillion dollars. Half a trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. But in return for that, we don't actually get a single new vertical launch cell to see, right? So, because Hunter's not going to uh, deliver inside the 2020s and the offshore patrol vessel is currently configured, you know, is not armed with any missiles at all. So, I just find it quite staggering that in return for half a trillion dollars, we do not get a, a new missile launcher to see. And so I think we can do better in that regard. And so um, that work was about suggesting one way to do that. Another thing I've suggested um, several years ago, and it's an idea that I think a lot of people are, are considering now is that, can you upgun the offshore patrol vessel in some way? Can you um, put missiles on the offshore patrol vessel, such as the naval strike missile that we're requiring for the Anzacs and the Hobarts? Can we put that on the, the OPV? Or or can we um, get a, a, a different design that somehow, you know, of the same pedigree of the OPV that we could start construction on quickly? All in the name of getting more lethal capability to see uh, more quickly. And it, it, it could be, I Would not be surprised if the Defence Strategic Review um, does propose something along those lines, either upgunning the OPV itself or getting a minor war vessel uh, of the, the, the OPV's pedigree that we can start construction on quickly.
0: Thanks, Marcus. I really appreciate that explanation. Obviously, there's a lot of key challenges and risks you've highlighted there as the Navy goes through what is arguably its largest recapitalisation in history. Looking at the DSR, again, Marcus, you've been a capability commentator over many years. I won't hold you to it, but I'm wondering if you can kind of expand what do you think will be some of the maritime capability themes that come out of the DSR to be announced next month? What are you sensing?
1: yeah great question and uh, you know it's a question that we're all sort of waiting with great anticipation to see the answer to you know uh the the dsr team itself has been pretty close-lipped and the government itself has been pretty uh close-lipped around what's going to be in it so you know this is a lot of speculation um you know i certainly don't see them cancelling hunter w- would they um, you know, restart construction of Hobart-class destroyers? You know, it, it's possible. I'm, I'm well aware of the arguments against it, um, you know. So that would be, I think, a pretty big statement. Um, it would also be a pretty big st- statement of sort of lack of confidence in the hunter-class program. So will we see more, more air warfare destroyers? I wouldn't put money on it, but I certainly wouldn't um, say it definitely won't happen. I do think that in the minor war vessel space, there will be something there, whether it's upgunning the OPVs themselves or shifting production to, you know, w- whether it's a you know something a classical Corvette or uh, some kind of. Uh, armed um, patrol vessel. I'm not sure, but I do think there will be something there. I mean, my own view is that we're spending, you know, uh, 4 to $5 billion on the OPVs. They're 1,800 tonne ships. You know, I just don't think you can spend that much money getting a ship of that size and have no lethal capability on it you know, and I'm a big fan of, you know, emerging concepts of mosaic warfare. So more smaller distributed platforms. And I think an armed OPV gets us moving in that path. So more um, platforms in the water, not necessarily as big and capable as a frigate or destroyer, but again, aiming at complicating the adversary's planning. So instead of you know, them having to track, you know, one or two frigates and destroyers, they now have to be aware of, you know, five or ten vessels in the battle space, each armed with lethal capability. Uh, Also in that kind of mosaic warfare space, I do think that there will be efforts to accelerate uh, the development of autonomous, uncrewed, Systems, so we, we're seeing signs of that already with uh, the so-called ghost shark being developed by Angeral for the Navy. So, a hundred and forty million dollar project that's going to deliver three pro- prototype large uh, uncrewed underwater vessels. I think we're the we're going to see more uh, work being done in in that space, and you know, to my mind. Um, that, that is the future. The only question is is when will it arrive and what will it look like exactly? So, you know, if, if we're going down the SSN path, we also need to be going down the, the other path of, uh, to get mass. So to have large numbers of, of platforms so you can have more sensors in the water, more processing power in the water, more, more weapons, in the water. So, again, what exact form that takes, what um, Angus Houston and Steve Smith are going to recommend, I don't know for sure, but, you know, I'd be reasonably confident there'll be more going on in that autonomous systems kind of space. I think, you know, the the moves that are being made to acquire longer-range strike weapons, I think that's going to continue. So, the naval strike missile, uh, long-range anti-ship missile, definitely. I have to say I'm a bit of a sceptic around Tomahawk. So the the government has said, you know, it's very interested in putting Tomahawk on Collins and putting Tomahawk on Air Warfare Destroyer. Uh, I am a little sceptical about that, partly because space is already so constrained on those vessels that Uh, if you put Tomahawk on, you probably have to take other weapons off. Now, if you're using Tomahawk in a maritime strike role as a ship killer, sure, okay, can see the benefit of that. But as a land strike weapon, we're just not going to have enough missiles to make any difference. You know, when you look at um, strike campaigns throughout history, you know, a handful, a few dozen, you know, long-range strike missiles uh, don't really make any difference. You know, it's hard for me to imagine how can they make any difference in a a conflict with you know uh, a military such as the PLA. You know, other than as a, a long range maritime strike missile. But we will see, I think, further in investment in in uh, upgrading missiles, increasing weapons stocks. Um, I think we will continue to go down the path of establishing a uh, sovereign guided weapons enterprise here in Australia. It, to my mind, I would like to see that expand beyond simply producing existing US weapons. I'd like to see um, us take a little risk and push Australian industry to develop guided weapons here. Uh, I think Australian industry can do that. There's actually a lot of industry expertise here. There's also a lot of willingness on the part of Australian industry to do that. So I'd like to see the DSR kind of commit to uh, Australian industry and push Australian industry to um, design and build uh, our own guided weapons. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be, you know, building Javelins here or LRASM's here, but I'd also like to see support for Australian industry here.
0: Thanks, Marcus. Some really interesting themes there, from uh, uncrewed surface vessels to uh, corvette-sized vessels to strike capabilities. I really appreciate you going through that, and that was a, a really interesting report from November twenty-one.
1: And I mean, I could prove to be completely mistaken and the DSR says none of the above. So we'll wait to see.
0: We'll all know in a few weeks. Yeah. We've touched on a lot of uh, capabilities there and a lot of those could be classed as kind of offensive capabilities for the RAN and other services. Do you think there's any, any other specific areas of RAN capabilities that require urgent attention and investment, especially that defensive space? And if so, why?
1: Hmm. Well... Look, the broad narrative for the Royal Australian Navy over the next couple of decades, I think, is very challenging. Okay, the the kinds of issues that we're sort of aware of in the submarine transition, so with a an existing fleet that's ageing. Um, that we know won't meet the emerging challenges, but, you know, it's very difficult to get the replacement capability into service because of the cost involved and the, the industrial capacity involved. There's a very similar, uh, challenge occurring with Navy surface fleet. You know, it's not just columns that's aging, but the Anzacs are, are aging as well. And so far, we don't seem to have a stable, mature design for the the hunter that we can start building. So I think there's a lot of strategic risk for the Royal Australian Navy over the next couple of decades. And I have to say, I'm, I'm very concerned. And, you know, that's not a comment on the quality of the people in the Navy. It's just we have, when you look at sort of Navy's core business of subsurface, uh, undersea warfare and surface warfare, both of those those businesses are facing risk. But then, uh, as you say, there's other areas that we need to be aware of, and so I'm sure you're aware that you know of, of that that inconvenient bit of data that since World War II, more warships have been destroyed or damaged by sea mines than by any other. Um, military technology and you know our the our um mining capability our defensive mining mine clearance capabilities aging the um there is a program to uh, replace them with um uh, autonomous systems but you know those technologies have still have to mature and then the, the, the ship that's probably going to carry them will be an evolution of the OPV, so that's going to be more pressure on our our shipbuilding capability. So, you know, there, there's big questions uh, in our defensive uh, mining space. The flip side of that is that we have seemed to have re- remembered once again uh, that uh, mines are a are really Great asymmetric capability. If you want to make life difficult for an ad, an adversary, then sea mines can do that pretty pretty quickly. And defence now does have a program to acquire um, smart sea mines. So so that's a you know a, a good thing that's that's going on. But there are a lot of challenges. Out there, and like all navies, somehow working out that balance of investment between your traditional kinds of platforms, your crude ships, your crude submarines, on the one hand, and all of those uh, amazing new emergent technologies that have a lot of potential but aren't there yet. You know, those uh, autonomous systems driven by. Uh, artificial intelligence you know huge potential but you'd be a very very brave person if you came out and and sort of pinpointed a date when you think they'll be mature and and you can uh, stop investing in those traditional platforms and you know i think that's that's the, the challenge you know at the moment the government and the department of defense have said look you know we're We're committed to that traditional pathway. We're going to replace Collins with SSNs, you know, and I think, you know, that's, that's probably pretty sound at this point in time, but the question is, will be, it's not to me at what point will autonomous systems replace those traditional platforms in, in in the sense of being able to do those the missions better i think it's going to be a very very long time before you know an autonomous platform can do what a collins can do let alone what an ssn can do i think the challenge is at what point in time do those autonomous systems make it too difficult, too dangerous, and too risky for a crude platform to do its mission? You know, at what point do, does the, you know, the proliferation of autonomous systems put so many sensors in the water, so many shooters in the water, so much um, processing power in the water that, you know, just becomes too dangerous. For traditional submarines and ships. Now, again, I don't know the answer in terms of when that's going to happen, but I, it will happen at some point in time. I'm I'm pretty confident about that.
0: Thanks, Marcus. That's incredibly interesting. There is a lot of discussion, as you know, about the time frame in which the oceans will become transparent, based on those advancements of capability.
1: Yeah. Look, I think. Many commentators have said the oceans will never become transparent. But let's look at, say, Ukraine, you know, the proliferation of small drones there. Some of them are, you know, military drones, but other ones are simply, you know, your DJI drone that any of us can buy at JB Hi-Fi. And they are, they're kind of omnipresent. You know, the, the kinds of uh, surveillance you now have of the battle space and the ability to prosecute targets in the battle space, whether that's through drones or through relatively affordable precision-guided um, munitions fired from artillery, uh, you know, it's we're, we're seeing a transformation now. Obviously, the ocean is is a harder environment. The uh, undersea space is a a harder space, but I think we're getting a, a glimpse already in Ukraine of what even the maritime battle space will look like. Not not tomorrow, not next year, but at some point in time. And it does come down to that cost-benefit uh, factor. Yes, an SSN can do the job better than any uncrewed platform, but if you're spending you know 5 or 10 billion dollars on an ssn you know that can buy you an awful lot of autonomous systems and though those autonomous systems are ones that you'll you're able to lose you're willing to to lose them you know we we're not won't be willing to lose ssns with a, a crew of 100 you know bright valuable young australians on board
0: Unfortunately, that's all we've had time for today. It's a great discussion, Marcus. Thank you so much. Touching from all things AUKUS, DSR, long-range strike, uncrewed surface vessels, and mine countermeasure capabilities. Dr Marcus Hellier, thank you so much for joining us here on The Saltwater Strategist.
1: Thanks for the opportunity, and it's been a, a pleasure contributing to your work, so thank you very much.
0: Our guest today was Dr Marcus Hellier. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing, and following the Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you are interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our podcast sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.